Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Is your KiwiSaver invested in porn and weapons and ciggies? Does it have a stake in fossil fuels and palm oil plantations? And how would you know? I'm talking to Barry Coates, the founder of Mindful Money, which is a website that digs into investment funds to see where the money flows. Barry is a former Green MP, the CEO of Oxfam, and a passionate advocate for the power of money to do good. I talked to him about radical transparency, green funds, and his own Damascus Road conversion. And we're good. Okay, and Barry, thanks for joining us on this climate business. My pleasure. So I think we should start with Mindful Money. You have had a long career um, as, as CEO of Oxfam, and uh, you could have done many other things with your life. You probably could have put your feet up, but you started Mindful Money. What's your motivation? What are you up to? So I uh, once upon a time, I, I trained as an economist and and uh, uh, a master's degree from Yale University, and, and that included work on finance. Um, I had my sort of road on the Damascus, uh, uh, on the way to Damascus conversion, conversion. and uh, decided to... Uh, what, not a religious conversion? So. Uh, no, actually a conversion to, to the concept of sustainability and... Uh, Really, in the, in the wake of the Earth Summit in 1992, you know, listeners uh-huh. may may uh-huh. remember that. It's a long time ago now. This but is it was Rio. A, it was the time when there was a, uh, a, a kind of an integration of the idea uh, that we live on a small planet and we have to look after it with the idea that we have to look after people and we have to address issues like poverty and injustice and bringing those two concepts together in the in, at that time, what was uh, a groundbreaking concept of sustainable development, mm. sustainability, and that was that was a really important time for me because it took me from a sort of finance and business and economic development focus much more into sustainability. And in that time, I helped uh, set up a number of initiatives in the UK, including uh, one on ethical investing. And that issue of ethical investing stayed with me. And it, you know, at, at the time, I had a little bit of money to invest, not much, but but I found out that my investment, unbeknownst to me, was invested in some of the companies that I was really upset about for destroying the environment and, mm-hmm. and harming people and abusing human rights. And I had no idea until I did the research. Um, so that, that, remi- that kind of stayed with me as the kind of transparency that's important, but also the kind of empowerment of an investors to say people ought to know where their money is going mm. and they ought to have a say over what they're invested in. So, and, and, that, what, and what does Mindful Money do to empower that sentiment? So, so exactly that principle we've used uh, for Mindful Money and, and um, the way it works is, is that we basically deconstruct all the portfolios and all of the KiwiSaver funds and we look at the companies that uh, people invest in. So you can key in on, on our website, whatever KiwiSaver fund you have, 
and we'll show you the companies that you're invested in and how much money of your portfolio is invested in those companies. That's amazing because that's a, a myriad of um, tree, you know, sort of roots, and you know, with because the, they invest in funds of funds, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. And so you're into intricacies that potentially perhaps even the fund managers don't know about. Where do you get the information? Yeah. It was interesting. When, when we've, we produced our initial report, we had a number of fund managers come to us and say, I had no idea that we're invested in this company. <laughs> so, so, did yes, they change their mind as a result? Uh, they did, actually. So, right. so that's one of the things that we're trying to do. So, so uh, uh, we get the information from painstaking research and we piece it all together. Um, and essentially, we give people a... a a, a relationship between the companies they invest in and what those companies actually do. And we categorise those in areas that the public say they're concerned about. So every year we do a survey and we ask people, what do you want to avoid in your investing? And so that's what we report on the website. So you can go onto the website and say, oh, I've got money in fossil fuels and I've got money in gambling and pornography and tobacco and alcohol and weapons production and, and palm oil, GMOs. And, you know, those kind of issues are what the public's concerned about yeah. and that's what we report against. So, so that's what we call radical transparency in, uh, uh, in investment. And once you do that, uh, you can then... If you want to change to a more ethical fund, we have a simple criteria to say, here are some ways of, of thinking about your investment. So one is, what what kind of investment approach do you want? What kind of values do you want to express through your investment? And what kind of risk profile do you have? And then based on that, we can recommend uh, ethical funds and we do the screening of what's really ethical and what's greenwash and we just put the really ethical stuff up there uh, and we can point people towards funds that they may be interested in. To what extent are people prepared to trade off their financial returns? I assume that there is a trade-off between being putting your funds into ethical funds, your money into ethical funds and financial returns. Does that trade-off have to happen and to what extent are people prepared to do that? Yeah, it's an interesting question because people assume that there's a negative relationship, that if you invest ethically, there's a cost to it. And that's why you'd have a trade-off. But actually what the research says is quite the reverse. I assume that putting money in tobacco, as much as I would hate it, would give me a higher return. No, no what, uh, what's been shown uh, is that actually over a long period of time, the research shows if you invest ethically, if you invest in companies with with good practices uh, and avoid the declining sectors, then actually what you have is you have higher returns. And, and people intuitively know that. So, you know, the most trusted companies in New Zealand tend to be those who are strongest on sustainability issues, for example. They have loyal customers. They have a strong brand. They have motivated employees who they who they treat well with, with good practices. They don't get sued for environmental liabilities. In many ways, there is a relationship between strong company policies on issues like sustainability and good financial returns. And that isn't properly priced in the financial markets. So, so what you see is if you invest in, in companies that do have 
good sustainability policies and good ethics, then actually over time your returns are likely to be as high, if not higher. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so, you so there, use- isn't, there isn't that negative trade-off to say, you know, if you invest ethically, I'm going to get less money. Actually, it's it's this this rather strange situation where where people can have their cake and eat it too. My sense is that not many people would understand that. No, I think that that realization is still still getting out there, and, and uh, the the uh, CEO of BlackRock, which is the largest financial asset manager in the world, put it put it. He said, you know, if if you can follow your values and the way you invest, and you get good returns from doing so, um, that are probably higher than returns you get from mainstream investing. The question isn't why would I do this? It's why not, and 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 yes, the the message hasn't fully got out to the public about uh, about the f- the fact that there isn't that trade off, and actually, it's good investing practice. I keep hearing these this acronym ESG. Mm. What is that? ESG means environmental, social, and governance factors. ESG are taken into account. Um, in uh, in financial decision making, and what happens in financial decision making is is com- the fund managers tend to look at two things: they look at returns and they look at risk, and those are the dominant factors from a financial perspective. And so ESG means that you're managing the risk from the environment managing the risk from social factors and man- managing the risks from, from governance. So, for example, you're managing the risk that a company is going to destroy the environment and their reputation is going to suffer as a result. And that's horrendous for, for many companies, as we've seen in company after company. You know. So, an example being, I don't know, let's choose a, a really high-profile... B- B- BP Horizon, where, you know, it's... Uh, so, they, they have you know, not fully recovered uh, from that, you know, a decade later. And, yeah. and uh, you know, Volkswagen, for example, on their emissions testing and and Fletcher building on, on poor governance. And, you know, there are many different companies, some of them gone out of business altogether. And, and within that ESG category or movement, I suppose, there must be, I'm seeing an increasing number of exclusions, tobacco, weapons, pornography, uh, and so on, some of the things you've listed, meaning that companies are now being excluded or excluded from funds uh, as a a kind of negative screening approach, right? Yeah. um, So let me just finish off on the ESG. ESG is about financial risk. It's not about morals. It's not about sustainability impact. It's not about doing the right thing in the world. It's about financial risk. And so people sometimes look at it and say, well, ESG means that there are good environmental practices or good social. It's not. It's, it's actually managing the financial aspects of environmental risk. And if there isn't that financial risk, then actually the ESG factors tend to get ignored. So, so you can't directly always equate the managing of that financial risk with actually what the impact of companies are and the impact of a portfolio. So so when you when you come to sort of manage ESG, there, there are two ways you can do things. You can 
avoid those companies altogether. Mm. And that's what we call the negative screening. So you just right. you screen them out of your portfolio and say, I'm not going to have any fossil fuel companies in there, which, by the way, at the moment, well, over the past five years, has been very good financially to exclude fossil fuel companies because yeah. they've yeah. halved in value. Sure, yeah. Um, but the the other the other side of it is you could you could do it differently. You could hold those company stocks, and you could be pressuring those companies to improve their ESG performance. And if you do that, then actually what the fund managers say is you can get an increase in the value of the company by improving their performance. Mm-hmm. And lowering their ESG risk and, and raising their returns. That must only apply to companies where the very act of being is not offensive. Yeah. So I'm assuming, for instance, um, a tobacco company. Yeah. So long as they're manufacturing cigarettes, it's going to be hard to improve, make incremental improvements, that's right? A, that's exactly right. If the core business model is destructive, then actually trying to hold those those shares and improve them actually isn't going to work. If it's a tobacco company that's in the tobacco business and is going to stay in the tobacco business, then actually what they do with a little bit of, of you know, water conservation or, you know, energy efficiency actually isn't making any difference to their business model. It's a destructive business model. And the same for many fossil fuel companies. Yes. Um, but there are examples, aren't there? And I, I think I... I reckon I know where you're going to go with this because we were both at a Jonathan Porritt presentation where he talked about the Danish oil and gas company, mm-hmm. Dong, which is a, it's a name hard to forget, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Who transitioned out of oil and gas and are now the largest wind and solar power supplier in Europe, possibly. Am, am I right with that? Uh, that's true. And and so, you know, in, in the fossil fuel area, there's a few companies that are making that transition and really going into renewable energies in a big way. Um, it should be said that they're, they're by far the minority. Uh, a study done in 2018 said, if you look across all the fossil fuel companies and you ask how much capital are they putting into renewables, the answer was about 3% of their capital investment. So, so most of the sector is still wedded to fossil fuels, but there are a few companies that are making that transition. So as an investor, you can do one of two things. You can either look for a fund that is investing in those transition companies, mm-hmm. or you can exclude the whole sector on the basis that most of it's not going to transition. Yeah. And yeah. and you know, we've seen the effect of that recently with with just huge numbers of bankruptcies in the coal industry and recently in sectors like shale oil and and uh, um, and I think more of those will come. And is that what people are calling stranded assets? Yeah. So the concept of stranded assets is uh, where um, oil and gas and coal companies have had these reserves on their balance sheet and their reserves have been counted in terms of, you know, millions, billions of dollars uh, in future revenues for them using those reserves uh-huh. under the ground. Yeah. 
But actually, if you if you're serious about climate change and and you know as a world we have to be serious about climate change and we have to make this transition to renewables. So what happens to all those reserves that we don't use? Because we have to leave them in the ground, otherwise we're going to fry our planet. So if you leave them in the ground, they're called stranded assets. And this analysis came came out. Uh, pretty much in the 2012-2014 time and has then been used in order to provide warnings for companies in the fossil fuel sector. And this is why Larry Fink of, of BlackRock has started to issue kind of hints, not just hints, actual statements to say we're exiting the fossil fuel business because we don't want to be landed with these stranded assets. Yes. Yeah, and and uh, so have many many investors. So so the campaign for divestment in fossil fuels is now up to something like thirteen trillion US dollars, and trillion is a lot of money. What what do you mean campaign? What does that mean? So so there's a been a um, a push through primarily through an organisation called three fifty three fifty dot org. Uh, and uh, as a declaration of interest, I'm, I'm a board member of, of 350 mm-hmm. Aotearoa. Um, they've done a fantastic job in putting pressure on on institutions primarily to, to exit from fossil fuels. That's meant um, big uh, investment funds, and one of the celebrated ones early on was the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation. Mm-hmm. They've made their money out of fossil fuels, mm. But then they These said, are the original oil barons. We're actually yeah. not going to continue and to invest our money anymore in fossil fuels. Yeah. Uh, similarly, quite recently, the the largest single fund in the world is the Norwegian sovereign fund, which made all their money again out of Norway's oil and gas. <laughs> Ironic. Yeah. They put it into a you know superannuation fund, like our New Zealand superannuation fund. Um, and they have d- severely kind of exited from from almost all fossil fuel. So that we've been talking a lot about exclusion or uh, sort of negative screening. Yeah. Is there also positive screening to say, ac- actually, I really want to throw my money into new areas such as renewables or regenerative farming? So using your money not just to punish but to reward. Yeah. So um, – as, as we said, you know, if you get beyond the, the sort of the ESG framework and you think about instead, you think about the impact of investment. What's the impact of investment on societies, on, on the environment, on, on climate change? Then actually where we're coming from in, in terms of ethical investment or responsible investment is typically starting where people are which is not knowing what's in their portfolio. Mm. And we move people from from the current situation where a lot of their investment uh, is in destructive sectors. And and we've added up what that is in New, New Zealand. The KiwiSaver of funds alone have got about $4.3 billion invested in those sectors that the New Zealand public doesn't want to invest in. <laughs> So you know that largely that, through apathy, I'd imagine, and that's in the the damaging end of the, of the scale. It, yeah. It's it's apathy, but also there's been no way for people to find out, right? Yeah. Until we started mindful money, sure. yeah. you just couldn't find out what was in your portfolio related mm. to the issues you might be concerned about. Mm. So so the um, first stage is really a do no harm. So clean up your portfolio, do no harm, and then you can 
take the next step, which is to say, can we tilt the portfolio more towards stuff that we really like? Yeah. And then the sort of next stage on from tilting is saying, well, actually, maybe I can put all of my money or part of my money into stuff that really creates social and environmental benefit. And that's what we call impact investing. So, so there's a do no harm, there's a kind of tilt towards the good stuff, and then there's impact investing. Now, um, there are some impact investing funds uh, that are starting to emerge internationally, and there's the first couple of funds in New Zealand mm. that have started up. At the moment, you know, most of it's oriented towards um, high net worth individuals and professional investors rather than yes. um, ordinary retail investors. So... As a retail investor, you can't really find investments at the moment uh, unless it's a small company or unless it's uh, uh, you decide to invest in an overseas right. fund. So I'm seeing the, the volumes of sums that are moving, first of all, out of do no harm into ESG, then moving into more positive screening, so investing in renewables and so on. The volumes and uh, eye-watering trillions of dollars, right? Uh, yeah, a- across they, the globe. Yeah, you, you got to be careful about the fine print um, because, uh, for example, in, in yeah, damn fine print. And in New Zealand, uh, we had in 2016 a scandal, for example, around uh, uh, the funds that were invested in cluster bombs or in tobacco. And so as a result, what, what a lot of fund managers did is that they just shifted out of cluster bombs or landmines and they just shifted out of tobacco, but they didn't do anything else substantively. So, uh-huh. so if you look at some measures of what's kind of ethical investing or responsible investing or ESG, then that stuff gets counted, even though it's a very, very small movement. Right. And there's a lot of greenwash. In, in the industry. So people, you know, everyone's claiming that they're ethical or responsible and everyone's claiming that they've got, you know, millions of dollars that are ethically invested. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you look at the reality, there's, there's um, a relatively small amount of that that passes the uh, common sense kind of sniff test okay. to say, you know, this is what people would normally regard as being a minimum standard if you're serious about being being ethical. And that's one of the things that Mindful Money has tried to do. We've tried to, to say there are standards here and we've applied those standards and we've... we've and the key thing is you need verification. It's not enough for people just to claim that they're doing something. Actually, we need verification. And that, that's what you see your role as being, is bringing the light and, into that and holding people to account. Yeah, it is yeah. one of the roles. And... Yeah. and uh, uh, but also in, in kind of empowering people to make their choices that, that actually, you know, if the public decides to do this, to invest ethically, it's going to shift the New Zealand financial sector. And it's already happening. You know, just with the establishment of mindful money and the things that we've been doing over the past year, we see substantial shifts. Like, the, like what kind of volumes are you talking about? Uh, well, we see that some of the, the bigger funds with with billions of dollars are shifting their portfolio towards higher ethical standards, and they're doing it in a way that's serious. How many – are you able to 
say out loud how much money you have shifted as a result of mindful money being yeah. doing its job. So, so there are two ways to count this. One, one is uh, the amount of money from people who go onto our website and they follow through our website, and then using our website, they shift their funds to a more ethical portfolio. Uh-huh. Over the past year, that's been about ten million dollars. Awesome. Um, in our first year as a small charity startup, where we're, we're Kind of, you know, we'd like it to be more, but but that's good. But actually, the impact of of that is high because a lot of people do the research on our website, but then they leave and they go off sure. and they go directly to the fund. So sure. we think that that effect is is at least double our own effect. And then the further effect is in persuading all the funds that actually there's a market there that people really want ethical investing. And so that's where we're trying to shift the whole sector and the whole industry to make their portfolios, their their offering of funds, I think that, much more uh, ethical. Absolutely, I, I think we saw probably in the last year at least two. I know Pathfinder, for instance, launched, didn't it? Which yep. is, I think, in in one of your you know ranks highly on the mindful. Money they, website. They do. They they Pathfinder has been around for a while. They they launched their KiwiSaver fund called CareSaver, Care Saver, that's the which one. is very very good fund, and uh, it's been a good addition into the KiwiSaver offerings. Um, so you know we give people the opportunity to compare across these funds on, yeah. on our website. I just want to shift the conversation now yeah. away from the the investor to the investee, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking of entrepreneurs who want to participate in this charge to a low emissions economy, to a more higher ethical uh, kind of economy. And they could be food producers, they could be engineers. You know, we know New Zealand loves um, creating stuff. If I'm an entrepreneur that wants to produce something that has high impact or really helps New Zealand get to a low emissions economy, how do I get access to this capital, this, these trillions that seem to be sloshing around the globe? You're right. There are there are trillions sloshing around the the globe. You know, but but you know the difficulty with those trillions sloshing around the globe. A lot of them are from institutional investment, and they have a relatively light uh, commitment to things ethical or uh, or what we call impact investment. So so actually, what they're looking for is they're looking for the same returns that they had, only to 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 do things that are a little little bit good uh-huh. and. So I think that the test comes uh, when when you look at uh, a new venture being able to attract capital. Um, uh, wh- what you need is you need patient investment. You need investment that is not just chasing the very highest return. So, for example, most of the venture capital community in New Zealand is after the the unicorns. The the uh, the Apple or, you know, the, the, mm. the Facebook or... or These the exponential com- organisations, the, they the call The companies them. that are going to increase the value of your investment by thousandfold <sighs> over, over a short period of time or, you know, be bought out after a few years and, you know, give you a couple of hundred times your investment. And the venture capital industry, is very, their DNA is very much in looking for those companies with explosive growth potential and the ability to make a huge amount of money. If we look at most of the the companies who have good things to offer for the environment or for society or for 
climate change, then actually they don't necessarily fall into that category. They can be good investments, they can earn good returns, but not necessarily that kind of, of you know, winner-takes-all kind of return. So, so there's not always funding available for those kind of companies. Mm. Now, the, the, you know, the, the sort of difficult thing is that the government's just set up a couple of mechanisms that you could imagine might provide some of that funding. Uh, one is, is uh, green finance uh, limited, which is like green investment finance is the, the, the proper term. So it's a fund capitalized at $100 million set up as part of the Green Party's agreement with the, with the, with the Labour Party mm. forming uh, and their support for the government. Um, I was actually involved when I was a Green Party MP in, in the uh, thinking behind that. So, uh-huh. so it's, a very, it's a very good thing. But at the moment, uh, it's only made one investment, and that's a, in, in a public sector uh, investment, rather than stimulating the kind of private sector Why markets. Why is that? Um, it's been going for how long? Uh, it's over a year now since it's been y- set up, right? Yes, it's still still kind of finding its feet, and uh, but hopefully it will uh, will stimulate. You're some, very, some more being very kind. Um, maybe good things take time. Uh, maybe good things take take time. I'm, I'm certainly be hoping. <laughs> I, I think you're being. I think you're holding back. <laughs> I, I know uh, people in the venture capital sector who are very frustrated that that organisation. You know, the, that the GIF fund has not been investing. Um, how how could it be? You know, in a more kind of positive sense, like what what could you imagine it doing? They uh, they could be seeding their their funding to de-risk the the funding opportunities for private investment. And what typically happens is is that for a new venture, you really want some cornerstone investors who are prepared to step up and say, "This is a credible investment." I'll take the first risk. I'll de-risk the investment for those who might then join, and that's the way to leverage in more private sector capital. Mm. Um, it is, by the way, the way that the UK's Green Investment Bank, which is similar to our Green Investment Fund, uh-huh. um, it's the way they operate, and the Australians have, have had a similar uh, investment fund as well. So, so there is a kind of proven pathway to be able to do that we haven't yet seen the green investment fund do that and it would be i think a uh, uh, a good thing for for them to do in future um, there's also another opportunity because the government set up a 300 million dollar fund through the uh, new zealand superannuation fund could elevate now elevate is a 300 million dollar fund for scaling up uh-huh venture capital to to uh, basically from series a to series b so so from a, a kind of a a two million dollar round to a 20 million dollar round so try to provide that that deeper pool of capital which has typically not been available in new zealand without uh, companies having to go offshore at a really early stage in their development so that's a 300 million dollar fund that the really disappointing thing about the way that that fund has been established is that there's no recognition that there can be investments that can actually be for positive good. That actually, again, they're looking for funding that is like venture capital funding, um, not 
funding that can actually be for good investments, which are not necessarily these spectacular growth unicorns, but which have positive benefits in terms of maybe reducing emissions or in terms of... So you think the criteria is still too much on financial returns rather than a, a, a broader range of factors. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the thing that uh, you find in the finance sector is that people spend a lot of time looking at financial factors, but without ever then asking the question, so what's the impact of the finance we're putting in? What's the impact of the investment? What happens to the investment that you put in? And it's, it's astonishing to think that it's, it's kind of like somebody who would go along and, you know, buy some timber and then they wouldn't think about the impact of where that timber comes from and whether or not it was from a clear felled forest or whether it was sustainably managed. Or buying eggs and, and saying, you know, under what conditions were these eggs produced? Or, you know, and we've become used to doing that as consumers, but, but we don't apply it to finance and investment. We don't ask the question, so what's the impact of my money? You know, if you put money into something, what's the impact? And the government's done the same with the with this $300 million Elevate fund, which should have been a classic case for here's our public money going into it, and therefore we should be looking for a public benefit to, to result, not just adding some money into a venture capital pool. It would have been a much more innovative and interesting and impactful fund if it had had those criteria as well. To what extent does the climate crisis change that formula where the financial return might um, not be so much? I'm thinking, for instance, of remediation projects in New Zealand, in the Pacific. I know you've got a lot of experience in the Pacific. So a seawall that protects a village or a town probably has quite poor return but quite high impact in terms of if the knock-on effects of allowing people to live there, continue their business, operate farms and so on. To what extent does the climate crisis change then the formula you would use to judge investments? Um, we do uh, annual surveys uh, as, as Mindful Money, joining with a group called Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. And these annual surveys not only ask about, about sort of the responsible investment uh, issues. It also asks about this area of impact investment. So we ask, you know, if there's something that has a really good impact like that, that, that is helping protect from climate change, for example, what kind of return do you expect from that? Mm. Do you return expect a return that as high as any other investment you can have, or would you be prepared to accept a lower return? And the answer is that a lot of people are prepared to accept a lower return. And, you know, there's space in there for saying, um, you know, we don't count all of the financial impact of these kind of investments because this kind of, you know, in the economist jargon, there's kind of what's called externalities. Yeah. There's some positive benefits that aren't costed into the financial costs that result from things that do good. And and so if you look at it from that perspective, we ought to be accepting a lower return because part of the return is in a, a, a good impact in terms of, of 
social environmental And is ESG the right mechanism for building in those externalities? No, because ESG typically doesn't take account of those kind of positive benefits. So it's really, you know, in, in, in the jargon, it's really kind of a full cost accounting or, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's appreciating the full value uh, of, of what is. And sometimes that stuff can't be measured. You know, it's 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 like uh, um, a, a great story that uh, the academic uh, Manuka Hanari says he 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 was advising an iwi on on their assets as as an iwi, and he said, "What about your mountain?" And they kind of looked at each other and said, "We can't put that on a balance sheet." And he said, "Why not?" And and you know, for all of us, there is there are values of things that we 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 really. Um, can value highly, even if they're not entirely measurable in a financial sense. I mean, that, that points much more to the failure of the of the measuring system. Sure, but the measuring system's never going to capture things that are important. You know, so so some things are, are almost too too important to be measured. You know, happiness and and lots of other things. In, People in do lives. try and measure happiness, don't they? Yeah. Barry, I want you to think about the Barry of nineteen ninety two, who who ex- mm-hmm. came away from the Earth Summit so motivated to make a difference in the world. Um, have you made that difference? How do you do? You feel hopeful uh, about the next decade that we face, particularly in terms of climate change, I guess, which is the subject of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting question. I, I've just, uh, when I was in the UK after the Earth Summit, I worked a lot with somebody called Jonathan Porritt, uh, now Sir Jonathan Porritt, and he's kind of born in New Zealand and and uh, has links in New Zealand, but but you know, kind of famous international environmentalist. He was our very, very first interview of course, on of course, this climate right. business. Yeah, so so Jonathan's remained a friend over the years, and his book has just been, uh, is just about to come out in New Zealand. It's called Hope and Hell, and, you know, plug for his book, but but it's fabulous because it, it he really goes into the bad news about climate change, as you would have found out from that po- podcast, but emerges in saying... Yes, of course. You know, we can get our act together. You know, the, the thing is that, that we can't necessarily be optimistic about, about avoiding severe damage and catastrophe. We can be very optimistic about doing stuff that, that would avoid even worse consequences. So, you know, I'm in, that, I'm in that camp. I'm worried about the future. I think I've done stuff over my lifetime, which hopefully kind of helps on, on this stuff. But each of us kind of contributes our own drops into the into the, the kind of stream that becomes the river that becomes the kind of unstoppable force to actually get some of the changes that we really need. And uh, what are those changes? And you know what has to happen before you hang up your spurs? Uh, um, well, really, why I set up Mindful Money is because um, you know money tends to be the lever that makes a lot of other things happen. And, uh, you know, the economy is important, but money has a particular place. You know, the flow of finance has a particular place in being able to power change and being able to leverage change. And so, you know, my whole vision in setting this thing up is saying, if we can get people thinking about the impact of their financial decisions at an individual level, at an organisational level, at an institutional level, and at a government level, 
then actually when we think about the impact, we will make far better decisions and we will we will direct money towards stuff that creates a more positive impact. And for climate change, that's what we need to do. We need to shift our money away from this kind of polluting and exploiting way that money has been used by companies into saying, no, sorry, there's no money available for that anymore. We will give you money if you as a company do things which respect the environment, which produce positive improvements, which respect people and human rights, uh, and move us back towards a more stable climate. And, And, you know, those are the kind of changes that can happen if we start thinking about the impact of our money and acting on it. Fantastic. Barry Coates, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Vincent. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer. That's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week. And no hurrah.